Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. JBR Capital has sponsored the Intercooler podcast for several months now. You've probably heard me talk about the company before. In that time, I've come to really understand what it is that makes JBR Capital different to other car finance companies. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I'd say it's this. Car finance is all JBR Capital does. Might sound like a minor detail, that, but in fact, it's really important. It means JBR Capital has a profound understanding of the car marketplace and of car buyers, an understanding that other finance companies could only hope to have. In fact, that very focused approach is exactly why the company was started in the first place. We recently had Darren Seelig, founder of JBR Capital, on the podcast, episode 106, if you want to go back and listen. And he explained that he started the company when he realized that general finance lenders actually didn't understand cars or car buyers particularly well at all. So he spotted that gap in the market and he founded JBR Capital to fill it. So before you buy your next car, be it a supercar, sports car, classic car, a hypercar, or a luxury car, even if it's a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. And it really helps us if you tell them that the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 112 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here. Um, Andrew, so it's Friday morning, the Friday morning of the Monaco Grand Prix weekend. As we're recording this, yeah. As we're recording this. And this episode is all about the Monaco Grand Prix. But of course, because of our schedules, we're having to record this before the weekend's race. Um, and so we've agreed, haven't we, that if it's a really exciting race, we're going to get back on um, on our Zoom call on Monday morning and do a couple more minutes about the race itself. So if it's a good race, we will now talk about it for a few minutes. Well, actually, Dan, we're not going to talk about it for a few minutes. In fact, I'm not going to bother getting Andrew back on the line to talk about the Grand Prix at all. Um, so you'll just have to put up with me blathering on for 30 seconds or so. Because it was a sort of compelling Grand Prix, wasn't it? Lots happened. It was 
fairly dramatic with the weather, the changeable weather, torrential rain at the start, um, drying out throughout the Grand Prix. Strategy calls won the race. Um, there was at least one big smash for Mick Schumacher. Thankfully, he was unhurt. Um, but once again, it just wasn't a particularly exciting motor race, not anything like exciting enough for me to bother getting Andrew back on the line to talk about it. Um, so congratulations to Sergio Perez, a popular winner, and he deserved it. I mean, the Red Bull pit wall was perhaps as responsible for that victory as he was. He drove beautifully, but strategy was a big, big part of it. Um, and he deserved it because he was quicker than Verstappen all weekend. Um, is he now in this title fight? I hope so. I guess we'll find out soon. Right, let's get back to the podcast. If it's another processional race, we won't bother at all. Um, but should we? I mean, I want this episode to sort of look at the the history of the Monaco Grand Prix, but also yeah. I want it to be a discussion um, about the Monaco Grand Prix as it is nowadays. Do you just want to briefly explain why it's worth having that discussion? Well, I, I mean, there, I mean, I think that there are two factors here aren't there there's the whole sort of social side of it um and whether it still deserves its sort of special status in the calendar whether frankly it still should be regarded alongside the 24 hours of the morning in Indianapolis 500 as the one of the three sort of blue ribbon events of of motor racing um when you know you've got so many other circuits coming along and 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 this leads into the second problem when they're frankly the circuit is so completely unsuited. Well, frankly, it's fairly unsuited to racing when it started in 1929. <laughs> it's, I mean, it is so totally unsuited. To, and all of us, don't we? As I say, we're recording this on the Friday, but we're all, you know, and I may be eating my words uh, come Monday morning, but um, we're all sitting here and, you know, we know that so often the race is decided on Saturday um, and that unless, unless something strange happens, and it does because it rains, sometimes and then you can get completely freak results i give you olivier panis um and all sorts of strange things can happen but you know if everything goes the way it usually goes which is that it's dry and you know whoever's on pole you know leads into sandavort then that's kind of it isn't it you know and you know genuine overtaking at Monaco has always been hard. But these days, I, I looked it up. So the first race in 1929 was won by a bloke called Grover Williams in a Type 35 Bugatti. Modern Formula One car is over 50% wider. It's over half as wide again as a Type 35. But they're running around the same streets, which are the same width. I mean, it's bonkers. I mean, they were pretty narrow whenever it was 93 years ago. Um, and now, you know, I couldn't, I can't, you know, even if I, I can't imagine racing a Formula One car, frankly, but I mean, I couldn't imagine racing a car. I mean, I've raced, I've been very lucky. I raced a C-type Jag there, uh, eight years ago. Um, and that was absolutely as big and wide a car as I'd ever want to race around those streets. So what it's like having another sort of, you know, half a meter of motor car out either side of you, I, I don't know, but, um, yeah, so it's just become this sort of, strange event it's almost well, it is a motor race in that you have winners and losers but it's not a motor race in that it's you know something where you can routinely expect people to be trying to overtake each other 
and it becomes this it almost becomes a parade doesn't it it becomes a sort of procession and it's wonderful because the place is beautiful and it's glamorous and there's the harbour and it's all you know glitzy and everything else but yeah, there are a, you know, a dozen or more other places on the calendar where you know I'd 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 rather go and see a motor race. Mm. Uh, yeah, I suppose at the heart of it, it's this sort of the gap between the the Monaco Grand Prix's reputation and status as one of one um, one of three trip of the Triple Crown of motorsport. Um, so it has this this amazing status. And yet the racing is so often tedious and processional. And so it, it really, it very rarely lives up to its reputation or its promise. Um, and so that's why it's worth having this conversation about the Monaco Grand Prix. But before we sort of get into that debate, should we just look right back um, at the origins of it? Because actually it, it was, its inception, it was created for very boring, pragmatic, unglamorous reasons. As you said, the first race was in 1929, organised by Anthony Noge with the blessing of Prince Louis II um, through the Automobile Club de Monaco. And the ACM organised Rally Monte Carlo. The rally predates the the Grand Prix. And the ACM wanted to become recognised as an international governing body rather than just a, a regional French governing body. And the issue was that there was no... Despite the Monte Carlo rally, there was no motorsport event solely within the Principality of Monaco. The the, the rally was all across Europe, wasn't it? Um, and it all and it converged on Monaco. Um, and yeah. the, so the point being is that, that no internationally recognised sporting event started in Monaco. They all started somewhere mm. else. So they might have ended there, but yeah, absolutely right. So <clears throat> the ACM needed an event that was within the confines of the Principality entirely. Um, and hence this idea to race Grand Prix cars around the, the streets of Monaco. So, yeah, it first happened in 1929. I think we've probably had the discussion about William Grover Williams before, haven't we? Um, who yeah, won sure that first have. race in a Bugatti Type 35B. I, I, I'm sure you've written, you have written about William Grover Williams for, um, for the Intercooler app. So if people want to know his story, and it's an amazing one, um, you should be able to find it on the app. Um, so that's the the sort of origins of it. Ooh, have I? Have I though? It's awful, <laughs> isn't it? I should be able to remember this. Um, I, I hope you can okay. find all that. If not, find a way of letting us know, and I will. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he was absolutely. Well, actually, there were three of them. There were him. There was Robert Benoit, and there was Jean Pierre Vimille, um all of whom worked for SOE, the Special Operations Executive, during the war. Whatever they achieved in motor racing, frankly, is completely immaterial compared to what they achieved with the French resistance uh, in the war. Uh, and two of the three of them, sadly, didn't survive to see the other side of it. The third, frankly, didn't survive that long once he was out the other side of it. But, um, yeah, I'll, um, if I haven't, I will. Yeah, 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 because it's definitely a story worth telling and worth reading. Um Okay, so, and as we know, through the 50s and 60s, it became a very prestigious event, didn't it, the Monaco Grand Prix? Yeah. And it's during yeah. this era that your old mate, the late Sterling Moss, won it three yeah. times, and he, he didn't call it the Monaco Grand Prix, did he? <laughs> St- Sterling, for reasons best known to Sterling, and it may be, I mean, he would have got it from somewhere, so it may be what everybody called it, though. he used to call it Monaco. 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 <laughs> uh, and I, I always used to titter. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know why Monaco is funny, but it just is. Um, it just is. But it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, so 
he won it three times, 56, 60 and 61. Um, and you, you think insofar as it's not fast, it's not got those sorts of corners where you, you know, if you're in your Maserati 250F or whatever, you'd be in these enormous, endless drifts. Uh, you wouldn't have thought it was a particularly sterling type place, but he loved it. He absolutely, I mean, he, he clearly loved the nightlife and all the stuff that went with it. Um, but he actually, um, he found it suited him terribly well um, because, I don't know, there was a sort of precision. And, and, and the other thing about Sterling is however fast he drove, however extravagantly he drove, um, he never used more than an inch of tarmac than he, than he ever wanted to. He was like sort of Jim Clark in that regard. Uh, and if you're a lesser talent at somewhere like Monaco, you know, and you haven't, you can't drive that precisely, then you either slow down or you don't and you're in the wall. And, and the way he could thread it, um, it, it enabled him um, memorably in 1961 to hold off a pack of ridiculously faster Ferraris for the duration of the race. Um, and yeah, and he absolutely loved that. It, it actually, in a totally different way to somewhere like you know the old Spa or the Nurburgring, it showed uh, it was a great level. You know, the the, the 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 greater your talent, the better you would do that. It wasn't like sort of places like Reims and Monza, which are great slipstreaming places, where frankly the bloke with the most powerful um, engine was likely to to win the race. The, it was as much as the Nurburgring, as much as the old Spa. It's a proper driver circuit. Um, so yeah, he absolutely adored the place. Mm. Yeah, won it three times. Um, over the years, two cars have ended up in the harbour. Um, actually, that's a surprisingly small number because whenever I see the cars racing around there and ha- their proximity to the drink, I just think, crikey, a- at any moment someone could end up in there. But it's only happened twice. Um, yeah. Alberto Scari and Paul Hawkins. Neither was seriously hurt. They were able to get out and swim to safety. I, I suppose neither of them would have had belts or harnesses? No, absolutely not, no. Um, because, the, the, and if they had, they'd probably have been killed. Oh my goodness me. Well, it doesn't bear because thinking the, now, does it? The, the halo, the hands device, the, the six-point harness. I'm not sure you'd stand a chance, would you? You'd never get out. No, no, let's not think about that. I don't remember. Yeah. That's awful. Um, so, yeah, I mean, only two cars have ended up in the water. And it's probably just about the only example, isn't it, of having no safety ends up saving your life yeah yeah it's an extraordinary thought actually although, um, although actually to to, to to yeah you know obviously back then um and i'm digressing a little bit um but you know it's a point worth making that you know it's not as if they didn't know about you know safety belts and that sort of thing in the 50s um the reason they weren't fitted is they were all so frightened of cars catching fire um they've far fancy sorry they far more fancy their chances out of the car than in it um and so if you're going to have a big one you actually wanted to be chucked out the car awful way that sounds ah different times um so yeah do you, you get you earn yourself a thousand intercooler points which are not redeemable anywhere if you can yeah. name the third car and driver that's ended up in the monaco harbour the third car and driver. Well, I thought there only were two, so clearly, but it wasn't in a Formula One race. Nope, I'm guessing it was in a depiction of a Formula One race. 
in a depiction of a Formula One race. Oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so we're talking about Grand Prix, the Frankenheimer movie. Uh, Brian Bedford. Oh, well done. Um, I'm going oh, to give you. Uh, and he was, yeah, he was. He was meant to be in a Lotus, wasn't he? Um, well done. But well, I can't remember what, what, what they called. What do they call it? Well, it was Brian Bedford playing Scott Stoddart, wasn't it? Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 You're right. Um, in the Frankenheimer movie Grand Prix, um, and yes, it was meant to be in a Lotus, but they didn't call it a Lotus. I can't remember what they called it, but yeah, he ended up in the drink. That'll come to you in the next ten minutes or something. Um, Probably. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's um, actually the more shocking part is the crash that somebody has, um, and it's it's clearly just a doll that's being thrown around, but you know some sort of mannequin, but it's weirdly graphic and. Um, disturbing when you see when you see that accident um, so uh, okay let's just talk about some of the more amazing memorable occasions from this Grand Prix for instance I didn't yeah I didn't realize this until this morning that for the decade between 84 and 93 the race was won by only two drivers absolutely in a field of their own during that time um, certainly in Monaco Alan Prost and Ayrton Senna um, and this was the era where we saw that extraordinary qualifying performance from Senna, particularly in 1988. Yeah. Um, in, that was in the MP44, wasn't it? So the, <clears throat> the, the utterly dominant yeah. McLaren. But he didn't he win the race. 1.4 seconds faster than Prost. And he didn't win the race. Was that because he shunted? Yeah, he, he, just, he, was, he was leading by a mile. Um, and um, he just he just binned it at the entrance to the tunnel. It was almost like for the first time, and almost certainly the last time in his career, um, he just let his mind wander. He lost his concentration, and under no pressure at all, totally unforced er- error, um, you know, cruising to victory. Um, but sometimes that's you know, cruising is not a very you know, yeah, you know, it's if you're driving as fast as you possibly can, you're not going to lose your concentration. And sometimes if you cruise, you do, and and he did, and he was he was heartbroken by that, um, and he he had a flat or something in Monaco, and he got out of the car and he basically just walked home, locked the door, and wouldn't talk to anybody for quite a long time. It really really affected him badly. Yeah, so yeah, you can imagine, um, and and. I mean, because of that, and also in some other words, I mean, McLaren's record, people don't talk about, people talk about, um, you know, Ayrton winning it six times and Michael and Graham Hill winning it five times. McLaren, how many wins Monaco did McLaren have? Um, so plenty with Ayrton, Lewis, um, Coulthard, okay. 10. So, so the second most, I hate this word, wingiest. <laughs> yeah. Mark is Ferrari which has been in Formula 1 for an awful lot longer than McLaren, and it's, done it, it's won it 10 times. Mm. Yeah? McLarens have won Monaco 15 times. Crikey. Half as many times again as Ferrari. And people never talk about that. No, I didn't know that. That's a huge number. Mm. Not for a while, though. Was Lewis the last one in 2008? <sighs> must have been. Yeah, must have been. Yeah. Ah, it's been a while. Oh, that's an interesting... That's another... That's another inter- Lewis is another interesting thing. Mm. And I say all this with, with, you know, under the headline of by Lewis standards. By Lewis standards, if not by anybody else's, he's rubbish at Monaco. <laughs> he's won it three times, which yeah, is the so same as... as... Sterling. Same as Nico. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, compared to 
other circuits that he would have been to. So where were he? He started in seven, didn't he? We're now at 22. So this is his 16th season in Formula One. Um, so with other circuits, he would have raced at 16 times. Um, you know, some of them he must have won. I don't know. Where's he won most? Of? I don't know. Some, I think maybe it's six. Tell us. I think it's Canada. I think he's won yeah. six or seven. I okay. think. So that's twice as many as Monaco. Do you think that's just bad luck or do you think that says something about his driving style? Or I think it's partly because a little bit of bad luck. And I think there was one, um, one year where he was due the win. There was an issue or they, his team Mercedes pitted him unnecessarily and that handed it to Rosberg. So, you know, if you think about that swing... If he had won that one, that would be four two, and then we, and we wouldn't be having this conversation probably. Because you know, but, but I, actually, I also I also think that um, the Mercedes has tended to be a long wheelbase car, which is yeah. really punishing around Monaco, Good and point. the Red Bull has often been the dominant car around there with lots and lots of downforce and a shorter yeah. wheelbase. So. It's, it's a good but point. I, I agree. It's he's he's not been dominant there like he has other places. No, no, no it's interesting, isn't it? Where were we? Um, uh, you've mentioned Monaco, I think. <laughs> we were in Monaco. You've mentioned Graham Hill winning um, five times. He was Mister Monaco. Of course, the the record though is Ayrton Senna's with six. Um, we have mentioned the nineteen eighty two race before, so we won't dwell on it. But I, I suppose I bring this up now because it's worth saying that some of the most incredible moments in F one history have happened at Monaco. Yes. I think 82 might go down as the funniest Formula One race. Or one of the funniest <laughs> yeah. Formula One races. The one no it's one the race wanted that to win. That no one wanted to win. Yes. And, I mean, we're, we can't go through it now because it's, it's really complex. But basically, on, in the last couple of laps, lot, several drivers span off or crashed out or ran out of fuel. Um, and it appeared that no one actually wanted to get across the line first to win the bloody thing. So, in the end, Ricardo Patrese who spun um, on that, that lap or the lap before, eventually came through to win the race. So it was a totally chaotic, frenetic so end to in the that Prix. race, okay, so uh, Rennie Arnoux Rennie Arnoux led um, a lot of it, and then Prost led the rest of it until two laps till the end. So that's Arnoux and Prost, who are at that time both pretty much given whoever's leading turns to win very much expected to win so there was Arnu and Prost and then Patrese was definitely going to win it until he binned it and then it was Peroni was definitely going to win it until he stopped in the tunnel and then De Cesaris <laughs> was going to win it until he ran out of fuel and then Derek Daly was going to win it until his gearbox seized and then Patrese came back having spun it and was going to win it and not going to win it came back and then finally won it. <laughs> oh you've done it well done uh, it's so, bonkers uh, yeah, I, had to write I, mean, it, I had to write it down this morning because I didn't want to sort of splurge <laughs> it out and get it wrong it's on YouTube you can go and watch it James Hunt yeah. commentating um, yes uh, 1996 only three cars finished so if you get to the end of that race you're on the on the podium um because it was a wet to dry one uh one yeah. by olivia parnas his only f1 win um oh and coultard and johnny herbert second and third um okay a, th- a thousand intercooler points to you if you can tell me what was unique about the 1952 race uh there wasn't one there was one, yeah, but oh, oh, okay. although interesting, there wasn't one in 51, 53, yeah. 54. So it's not like the British oh, Grand Prix. it was an Prix F2 race. No, it wasn't an F2 race. Oh. Close. You're in the right direction, though. Okay, go on. Let's have it. It was a sports car race. Oh. It was a non-champion. Oh. Frankly, it's the only reason I ever got to race there. 
The only reason they race sports cars at Monaco in the historic is because for one year only, the Monaco Grand Prix was a non-championship sports car race. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. Mm. Okay, well, hold on to that thought because we must talk about it. Um, the other flashpoint that I wanted to recall was Michael Schumacher, Schumacher parking up in qualifying in 2006. He was quickest. Um, but Fernando Alonso in his Renault was behind him, going faster, looked likely to take pole. And so Schumacher parks up at Larascas. And that's it. That's the end of qualifying. Um, didn't get away with it. He was sent to the back of the grid by the stewards. So it didn't exactly didn't work out ne- in his didn't favour. Nico do, didn't Nico do something similar to Lewis as well? Yeah, he was a bit more dastardly. So I, we can't say for certain <laughs> it was intentional because he went down the no. slip road knowing that if anyone goes, perhaps, perhaps knowing that if anyone went down that slip road, there'd be a yellow flag. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, maybe. But it just goes, maybe. In, again, it just shows just how important quality is there, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. You know, if you see P1 come off in your dash and, you know, and you're on your slowing down lap and you know that your probably quicker teammate is on his, is on his hot one and you just think, mm. if I just nip down there, I'm on pole. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll probably win the race. Probably win the race. Oof, Might tempting, win the championship. Yeah. yeah, very tempting. Um, okay, so, I mean, the point of all that was to demonstrate that we don't get good wheel-to-wheel racing necessarily at Monaco, but there have been lots of flashpoints. I guess because it's one people are so determined to win and it's one where there is zero margin for error. Um, but, I mean, you have a unique perspective here. You've not raced a Formula 1 car there, but you have raced an old sports car there. Just tell us a little bit about what it's like. I mean, are you constantly looking at the barriers and the walls thinking, could hit that, I could hit that? Okay. I, think, I think the first thing I would say it was never um, somewhere that I dreamt of racing. I wanted to race the great European circuits. I wanted to race at Le Mans, the Nurburgring, and Spa. That's what I really wanted to do. Monaco was never there, but then of course the opportunity came up, and of course, you know, why wouldn't you? Um, and you know, so it was, it was the two thousand. I think it was two thousand and fourteen Monaco Historics, um, and yeah, I was in this beautiful beautiful c-type jaguar and i was just really bloody nervous I, I mean the car wasn't insured unbelievably um and i just didn't want to bin it and i remember just driving around and thinking well it's very interesting but i can't really see how you can string it together let alone make it all flow um and I think we had some practice and that was okay and then in qualifying my i decided that i was going to I was going to throw qualifying because I wanted to be at the, right at the back. So I was just going to let him go um, because if there was any kind of carnage, I just wanted to be as far from it as possible. And you can, there are only two ways of doing that. One is to be on pole and disappear, and that was never going to happen. Um, and the other is to be right in the back. But I don't know how. It's the only time I've ever stuffed it up by going faster than I, wanted, than I intended to. But I ended up literally in the middle. I think I was like sort of P12 on the grid or something. Um, and And then in the race, something really strange happened. I just kind of... And you know, people who race there regularly say that this happens there. You just find the rhythm. And then suddenly this, what looks like this most Mickey Mouse of circuits, just starts to really, really flow. And particularly the bit from, so you come out the tunnel and you've got that horrible little chicane, which isn't nice. But from there, through to back and through the whole swimming pool complex, it's absolutely epic. Mm. And everything wow. looks different to any other track uh, you race on. Everything sounds different because you've got all the noise bouncing off the walls. 
Um, and, you know, and what you mustn't do is find yourself in a position where you're sort of looking around and thinking, I'm racing at Monaco, because then you're mm-hmm. in the wall. Mm-hmm. There's really very little time to think of anything, even on a very slow car like a C-Type. Um, you're always busy, particularly if there are people around you. Um, I did overtake someone at Monaco. Good so work. I've done that. Good work. I, over- I took somebody else in a C-Type, and it was Alain de Cadenet. Although he had drum brakes and I had discs, and it was towards the end of the, uh, end of the race, and I suspect <laughs> his brakes were getting tired. But nevertheless... But we now now know that you can overtake at Monaco. Andrew Frankel has proven it. (laughs) Andrew Frankel's proven it. Uh, I think he probably also gave me, he probably realised I was, um, you know, probably um, more keen on, you know, getting ahead than he wasn't keeping me behind. So I think he probably just let me go anyway. But anyway, um, so yeah, it's strange. And I I actually ended up really loving it. Absolutely loving it uh, in a way I'd never expected. And I'd gone there and... Gary Pearson very kindly walked me around the entire circuit and showed me all the little bits of curb that you use and bits of curb that you don't use. And, you know, you know, when you're going up the hill towards Casino Square and they've got that, what is it, Massonet? That, that really quick left going down to Casino Square. And judging where to break for that is an absolute nightmare. And, and it's, I can't remember, but it's like the sort of, it's either the second bus stop or the third pedestrian crossing or something that you break out <laughs> yeah. uh, or turn in at. And, um, you know, I'd learned all that. And suddenly, because of all this help that I'd had, and I'd spent a bit of time on the circuit, it kind of got together, and then it was, it was wonderful. But God, I wouldn't want to race anything wider than a C-type, let alone half a meter wide, and let alone something you know with whatever they got nine hundred horsepower. Um, yeah, probably oh. two hundred and fifty. I mean, it's just. I mean, hats off to them. I don't. I just don't know how they do it. The speed at which their brains must work. You know, and also. You know, there are 20 of, the, of, of, of them out there in these cars. I just don't know how they do it. It is absolute. And, and, and that in itself, um, just seeing them do that and just appreciating the enormity of the talent on display is, is something of a spectacle, but it's still not great racing, is it? Well, you make two very good points there. So let's discuss that. Let's talk about <clears throat> whether or not it deserves its place on the F1 calendar and whether or not it deserves its special status as one of the three pillars of the the triple crown of motorsport. Um, Because even now, or perhaps more so now than ever before, when the cars are this fast and this big and powerful, qualifying at Monaco is an almighty spectacle. The fastest cars in the world, the best drivers in the world, absolutely flat out around this place where there is so little room, no margin for error, and Lewis said it in a video the other day, to be fast qualifying in Monaco, you have to be prepared to touch the walls. So it gives you an idea of the precision they need to be able, they need to be capable of. Um, I mean, to the, ex- to the extent that you can, and you can see them do this sometimes, um, they will nudge the barrier, but they will be so precise. It is just the very corner, just where the tyre just curves down. It's like a millimetric mm. Uh, not enough to destabilise the car, and in, and if they'd done you know like a centimetre more, they'd have taken the corner off the car, and they'd been in the wall straight away. Yeah. And you think of the speed that they are doing it at; it's oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, on, you know, well, it depends where you'll be listening to this. So I, I mean, I hope that when you watch this on Saturday, which is actually ahead of where we're recording this, but um, that you that everybody just takes time to. Mm just focus on because actually it's quality at monaco it's, it's the only race of the year quality is usually more interesting than the yeah. race and do you know what there are, t- there are lots of circuits that for safety reasons have a- enormous runoffs think of paul ricard for instance you don't get to appreciate the skill of a qualifying lap there but 
At Monaco, you appreciate it. As a demonstration of skill, it's, it's second to none. Um, that's there the is Saturday. nowhere to go. Yeah. That's the Saturday, and then we have the Sunday. Um, and as we've mentioned, unless something unforeseen happens, which it can do, the bloke who's on pole trundles round, keeps everyone behind, and wins the race. M- yeah. Normally. Normally. Yeah. Um, and the cars are too big. They're too wide. They, there's no space to overtake. Um, and so it becomes processional. Um, so that's the, the argument against, isn't it? Is that it actually quite rarely throws up a really compelling Grand Prix. Yeah, and it's, you know, and, and that's a, you know, usually what has to happen to get an interesting Monaco. Um, and, um, you know, usually what you need is some weather, don't you? Um, mm. and, yeah, you know, like and we a, might have some this weekend. Oh, okay. So like a Panis 96, you know, let's, can we just talk about 1984 for a moment? You know, when, you know, that is the race that Senna should have won in, a, in, in, in the Tolman. Um, and it was ended, I think, on lap 32 um, when Alain Prost driving McLaren uh, won the race and Jackie Ix unilaterally, without going to the stewards, decided to end, and he was the clerk of the court, he decided to end the race. Um, and the fact that uh, that Prost had a Porsche engine in the back of his McLaren and that Ix was a works Porsche driver <laughs> at the time, I'm sure had nothing, nothing whatever to do with it. Um, but you know that was extraordinary because you know Senna got past Prost and they and and the race ended that lap and because you always take it from whoever's mm. leading the lap before that's the only reason that Alan Prost is on paper deemed to have um, won that race and let's not forget at the same time Stefan Beloff who's always forgotten that he started twentieth mm. came third that is amazing. in a normally aspirated car against the turbo cars um, so you do get these. Um, these anomalies sometimes it's so wet there and so slow so in 1972 this is the last formula one race of brm ever won jean-pierre beltoise in the only formula one race he ever won okay he won there in 1972 in a three liter well not slicks because they'd have been on wets at the time but nevertheless big fat tires wings three liters 500 horsepower formula one car in the second slowest monaco grand prix in history is literally only the first one in 1950 when they basically wow. had bicycle tyres was slower. Mm. Every other one before or, or, and, and, and since. Um, and so that's how wet it was then. Uh, and that was, just, that, I mean, that, was just a, that was just pure survival. Um, so it can happen, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite rare. And as I say, you need, you need something unexpected mm. you need sterling in that uh, in that lotus 18 uh, holding off the ferraris just through outrageous talent um but even then um you know there wasn't a lot of overtaking done that was just sterling keeping people behind him so yeah you do you know you need a bit of luck so even now when i we know that it, it is very often a, a disappointing grand prix i, I feel a frisson of excitement coming into monaco of grand prix weekend i feel it right now um and maybe it's because qualifying is so exciting but i mean there does appear now to be a very real discussion around its future as a formula one race um i don't know if this is liberty media bluffing to try and you know achieve something uh, Karun wrote, Karun Chandok wrote about the Monaco Grand Prix for us recently, and he explained that it doesn't generate a huge amount of revenue for Formula One. 
partly because there's a legacy commercial agreement that means the ACM gets to keep some of the or a lot of the trackside ad revenue, relatively few ticket sales because there just isn't the space. Um, and so this might be why Liberty is flexing a little bit to to try and generate more revenue from the Grand Prix. Or maybe Liberty does want to get rid of it and replace it with one that will earn more money. What do you think? Should it stay or should it go? I th- so you, you, get, <laughs> you, you get rubbish motor races there. It's been on the calendar for, well, certainly longer than any other race because you know it massively predates even the World Championship um, and all these other reasons. So... So you're you're you know Ross Braun or whoever runs Formula One. Would you mm. keep it or would you bin it? Um, despite everything, despite the fact that we know it's often not that exciting, the race at least I keep it because I think it adds texture to F1, and I don't care about the glamour, the yachts, the harbour. I don't care about that stuff. I care that it's a very distinctive street circuit. It's a challenge, unlike any other. And I think racing categories become a bit dull and lifeless when you just have this cookie-cutter thing where all the different events have the same feel to them. Um, but I, I agree, there are, there are problems with it. I would... I'd keep it. Um, because it's one race in a season of... Well, 22 races this year because Russia's gone. Um, so it's, you know, it's less than 5% of the season. Um, it is a unique spectacle. But what I think I probably would do if I was Formula One, I would say that I would acknowledge the fact that Monaco is different to any other race. It just is. And I would use that opportunity to treat it differently. And I do, I do strange stuff with it. I might suddenly throw a reverse grid at it or something. I'd do something, whatever I could, to spice up the spectacle. Um, because I, don't, I think if you just run it to the same rules that every other race runs, then you're going to get what you get. Um, so you need to find a way, and it cannot be beyond the wit of the organiser of Formula One to, given all the different things that they can do, all the ways that they can you know, level up the playing field a little bit between the back and the front of the grid. Um, so I would do whatever I could to make... And, you know, they're not actually at the moment doing anything to make the racing more interesting. It's just treated the same as any other race. And there, are, there is stuff that they could do. So I would keep it. Um, it's the Monaco Grand Prix for goodness sake you can't well I mean I'm a diehard old traditionalist but um, I don't think I think that Formula 1 would be poorer without it could it survive without it of course it could but it would be poorer without it and I would would miss it and also you know I'd also take the view that okay so Sunday may not be that much fun but you know Saturday's amazing Um, Mm. and you know so you get your you get your kicks on one day of the week rather than the other um, I don't know, but there's, you know, things they can do with sprint formats, they could do, I don't know, successful. I mean, I certainly wouldn't look at, there's nothing I wouldn't look at um, as a way of just spicing it up. And I would just, you know, it has always had a unique position in the calendar. It has always been treated in a unique way by the organisers of Formula One. It is a unique event. So I would give it its own unique set of rules. Mm, good idea. Yeah, reform rather than booting it out altogether. Um, so Charles Leclerc came out this week in an interview and said, and he is Monegasque, isn't he? So he has a particular view, but he, he said, um, F1 without Monaco for him isn't Monaco, reflecting the views of many. Others think it's a relic and a dinosaur. Um, and there, there's a good case to be made there. I do wonder if there's something about the glamour of it all 
all of a sudden in this day and age feeling irrelevant to most people. I think about the Oscars. Um, so this is the this very glitzy award ceremony, um, which ultimately is millionaires giving nice shiny statues to millionaires. And us plebs are what's supposed to be grateful that we get to witness this. And I just wonder if there's something about changing attitudes, a changing society. In its heyday, we, you know, Monaco, we think of Princess Grace, the casino, the yachts, the Riviera, all very appealing. But as the world has become more conscious about wealth inequality and of tax avoidance, and Monaco is a tax haven for the super rich, I do wonder if more and more people are looking at Monaco and seeing the nefarious side of it, not the glamour and the beauty of it. And, well... Um, I wonder if that's bubbling away underneath. I think, well, it's a very, very interesting point. Um, And certainly things like the Oscars have nothing like the status or interest among the public that they used to have. Um, And partly that's because we've all got so many other things to distract us and that sort of thing. But I think also, I think there's an awful lot of what you say. That said, you know... I think Formula One is a glamorous sport. It's certainly meant to be. Um, and I have no particular problem with that. You know, I've got a massively bigger problem with them going to, to Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and, you know, you know, and all the stuff that goes on there. Um, and yeah, you know, Monaco is, a, is, is a tax haven. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I think it's is better on the calendar than not, and I think that there are other places that Formula One goes which are far more questionable than um, than Monaco, at least to me. That's a good point. Um, okay, well, that's the Monaco Grand Prix. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, and we'll you'll know if we had a good race over the weekend because we'll have come back to talk about it at the start of the podcast if we didn't bother. Clearly, it was a, an unremarkable Grand Prix, um, which is part of the problem, isn't it? So, yeah, I, I just hope it's a good one because I do look forward to it each year. Um, we'll see. So thank you, JBR Capital, for sponsoring the podcast. Um, if you're looking to buy a car, a new car or a used car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you um, on the finance side. Please also rate and review the podcast, subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. Before we move on to the listener question, I just want to mention <clears throat> the Toyota GR86, which I've been driving this week. Replacement to the GT86, which is a car you adore, isn't it? Well, you really like that. It car. amuses me. I don't say I okay, adore. It, I don't, it I don't adore it. I, 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 I've never been anything less than thoroughly entertained by them, though. But, 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 okay. but I, well, I, I read what you've written, and you're, you weren't such a big yeah. fan of it, were you? So I had fun in a GT86 on track one time, yeah. and I thought it was brilliant there. But I didn't like the gear shift, I didn't like the clutch pedal action, I didn't like the steering, I didn't like the engine. Um, so I had, there were lots of things that, about it, I didn't like the tyres, lots of things about it that annoyed me on the road. This new car, the GR86, which is actually an evolution of it, totally addresses every concern and criticism that I had of, of the GT86. It's fantastic, and it's no less fun to drive. Yep. Um, there is one the engine is massive problem with it. Massive problem. Unless you got one of the first allocation of 430 one. cars, I think it is. You ain't going to get yep. one. They're trying. Toyota GB are trying to get a few more cars in. Um, 
but they have to get them from other markets. The Toyota can't, actually it's Subaru, can't just build more because the thing's only going to be in production for two years but owing to safety legislation that changes in 2024. So there's, there is very limited supply and if Toyota GB manages to get more, it'll be from other markets. So, you know, it's not as though they're going to suddenly find a couple of thousand cars and meet demand. No. They might find maybe the same again, although I'd be surprised. So, so it's, then there are no guarantees they'll find even a single car extra. So it will be a rare car in the UK. Um, if you've got one, congratulations. Yeah. If you have I imagine, imagine the residuals will be quite good on one of those. There's going to be an overs market for it, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, maybe. Particularly because it's so good to drive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my full review is on the Intercooler app now. Um, go and check it out. <clears throat> and as has become tradition, we end these podcasts with a listener question. Um, this one is from Keith Gibson. Thank you for your question, Keith. If you could have any writer from any period contributing to TI, who would they be? Um, <clears throat> he suggested Setrite and Russell Bulgin, but we want your uh, your answers, Andrew. Okay. Um, obviously, not including the ones who already do, because actually, and I'm not just saying this <laughs> to keep our contributors sweet, so many of the people who would be on that list are already writing for us, um, for which I feel insanely lucky. Um, and, you know, it's a very perceptive question, particularly in the names already given, because I think the Setright and Bulgin are probably the two names that most immediately spring to mind but also but you know so you know chris harris i'd love him to do some stuff for us um he is quite busy at the moment being a television star and so on and so forth um you know steve cropley uh again would love him too but you know he is um contracted to autocar which is you know completely understandable um and then looking back I just love that sort of 70s, 80s era of car magazines. So guys like Steady Barker, George Bishop, um, Phil Llewellyn, uh, wonderful, wonderful writers. Doug Blaine, um, you know, the bloke who basically started car magazine. Um, yeah, there are so many, aren't there? Um, but at the same time, I just, I just think that the guys and girls that we have writing for us now are superb. And as good as you'll find anywhere in the world, frankly, in motoring journalism as a team. Um, and so, you know, what I'm not doing is sitting here thinking, oh, if only we could have had this, that and the other, because I actually think, I think the team we've got is absolutely fabulous. I'd love to have May and Clarkson um, because they've both meant so much to yeah. me as a car enthusiast and as a, a car journalist as well. Also, I mean, there are certain difficulties here, but what about Hunter S. Thompson and PJ O'Rourke? Well, yeah, people like that. But they're not motoring journalists, are they? As such, they're you know. They're, no. But yes, absolutely, absolutely. Those iconoclasts who just write so brilliantly, so vividly, and with such attitude. Yeah, um, I think they would have been a wonderful fit for Ti. Uh, so there we go. Thank you for your question. It's a good one. Um, get your listener questions in uh, because we like ending the podcast that way, and we'll do that again next week. Thank you very much.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.